This is very much like that sermon that uh, the pastor, I told some of the college students about this last week, the pastor got up and said, uh, he did a sermon, he said, love one another, and he sat down. After the end of the sermon, all he did was love one another, and he sat down, and then uh, the next week, everybody was like, wow, that's an interesting sermon, real short, love one another, got it, okay? Came back next week, got up there and said it again, love one another, and sat down. All the deacons were like, okay, there's a problem. Uh, He needs to study more. Uh, Something's going on. And then the third week, he got up there and did it again, love one another. Now they all started going, okay, we got a problem. We went went to the pastor and said, okay, we got it. We heard it three times. We got your point. You, you need to preach a longer message. He said, well, I'll move on once you start doing it. <laughs> so today we talk about forgiveness again. <laughs> and I guess it's a call for all of us to really evaluate our hearts and ask the question, are we ready to forgive? Do we put others' interests above our own? You know, as we're... As I'm reading, just to give you kind of a prep, uh, you know, when I read that passage in the beginning of Luke and, and Mark was reading it, I was reminded just to, once again, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to him through whom they come. That, that resonates a little fear in my heart. I'll let you know right off the top, I, you know, I'm up here telling you, thus saith the Lord, and I take this very seriously. I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. I'm doing everything I can to study God's Word to make sure that I'm telling you exactly what He says and what He means in His Word. doesn't matter what my opinion is. It only matters what God's Word says. So I'm attempting to do that, and I would, do, I, I would challenge you with this. I, I would say, check me. Check me. Be good Bereans. Spend time in the Word. Study the Word to see if what I say is what it means. Um, don't let your opinion get into the way. Study the Word of God. And anything that I say that doesn't line up with it, chuck it. Throw it out. And anything that does line up with the Word of God, I challenge you to submit to it. So, we started last week with this whole concept of being ready to forgive. Last time we focused our attention on Jesus' exhortation to be ready to forgive your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, we dove into the big picture of looking at forgiveness. And we saw Jesus was calling His disciples to be totally different from the world they lived in. We saw the Lord required us to forgive because we are forgiven. We saw the true believer will demonstrate a heart of forgiveness continuously because they have been forgiven and are being forgiven by God constantly. We saw that forgiveness was totally foreign to the Pharisees' way of thinking. They taught a person must earn forgiveness by works. So as Jesus teaches these things, it just doesn't make sense to them, the Pharisees, that is, and it would be contrary to the way the disciples would have even thought. They taught people should only give forgiveness if the person earned it back, paid them back. But Jesus is teaching in Luke 17, 3 through 5, We must be ready to forgive continuously. 
We saw the problem of Jesus' day was not people did not confront people. They were doing that all the time. But that people were not ready to forgive when they did confront. <clears throat> I would say that in our society, both of the problems. That is, here's a word for you, antinomianism. Antinomianism is a problem. And antinomianism basically says we should, li- we should sin all the more that grace should abound. We can do whatever we want because, after all, we are, quote-unquote, saved. Doesn't matter. Our sins are forgiven. We can do whatever we want. That's what an antinomian would say. And legalism is also a problem. That is, setting standards that the legalist himself can jump over, but others are condemned by. And that's a problem, too. Obviously, the Pharisees were great legalists. They uh, obviously would fall into antinomianism in their own sins. They would allow that to happen because they were Jewish. And so Jesus is talking to them about how do we deal with people and brothers and sisters that have this problem, that are sinning. Should we be legalists and demand them to pay us back, or should we be antinomian and just turn the other, just turn away from it and just ignore it and let it go? Well, the answer is neither. We should confront at times, and we should be ready to forgive. And the idea is, is that we do this with the, idea, the hope that the person will be restored to a right relationship with God and there will be a restoration of relationship with the one that's offended us or offended God. Our passage calls us to confront our brothers and sisters with their sin because it is hurting their walk with the Lord and it's shaming the name of Christ. Here's what we often think. I want to confront somebody because they hurt us. But that's not the main motive of why we go confront people. The reason why we should confront people is because they're hurting their own relationship with the Lord and they're causing shame to Christ's name, the one that they wear, the Christian. But the passage also calls us all to be ready to forgive at a moment's notice. It calls us to avoid being that legalist. We saw last time that Peter grappled with this concept of forgiving a fellow believer because he asked that question in Matthew 18. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? (laughs) So the assumption is there, okay, is there a limit to the number of times that I say, okay, I forgive you? And Jesus answers, what? I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. A lot. We saw from Matthew 18, this Matthew 18 passage, that confrontation must be all about restoration of the fallen believer. We saw that we must confront not expecting an apology, but rather we should confront trusting in God to bring about reconciliation. Also last time, last time we saw that our forgiveness is often very much like God's forgiveness of us. We are forgiven by God, not because we deserve it, but because God's amazing grace. We saw our forgiveness is often conditioned on our repentance. But remember, even our repentance is given by God. So God's grace is all over forgiveness. We also saw last time that God's forgiveness of us is realized in two different levels. There's the positional level. 
and the relational level. The positional being when we are first saved, we are declared right. All of our sins are paid for. We are positionally correct with God. When we repent, we're declared right. Second, we saw that relational. That is, after we are born again, we are rightly related with God, and now there's this ongoing sense where the Father, when we sin against the Father, we need to go back to Him. Is our relationship completely severed? Is it broken? No. But there's this ongoing sense of needing to go to God and confess our sins, as 1 John 1, 9 talks about. If we are... We confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, why do we confess our sins and why do we get this forgiveness? So we can enjoy our relationship with God and be reconciled to Him. Forgiveness here is conditioned on repentance. Which again, even this repentance is ultimately given by God. So, we left off last week concluding that forgiveness between ourselves is similar to God's forgiveness of us. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. My conclusion last week was this. Forgiveness between believers breaks down into two main categories. First, sometimes forgiveness is conditioned on repentance and sometimes forgiveness is unconditional and not based on repentance. Now the context of Luke 17 and Matthew 18 points to a time of it being conditioned on repentance. In other words, I give forgiveness, we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation when a person asks for forgiveness. To forgive a person when... They repent implies what, though? A heart that's ready to forgive. A heart that's, okay, I'm, as soon as they say, I'm sorry, I'm there. Do you understand? So if you go to confront somebody and your heart's not already ready to embrace them, then you're not ready. You're not ready to go talk to them. Your heart already has to be at that place where you are ready to reconcile, which is as if you've already gone to that side. You've already got there. And yes, it implies that in these cases, full forgiveness includes reconciliation of the relationship. And so it's a two-party event. But, again, just to warn all of you, we are all personally only responsible for one part of the event, our own side. We cannot make a person ask for our forgiveness. Yet we must confront ready to forgive and lead the results completely to God. Ultimately, our purpose for confronting must be love for the other person. Total commitment to the other person. When we confront, it's about them, not about us. Do you understand? If you're going to confront somebody because you got hurt, you missed it. If you're going because they're hurt and because they're not enjoying the relationship, you're ready. But we also talked about times where it appears the Bible talks about unconditional forgiveness. And I believe these are in Mark 11 and 1 Peter 4, 8. This passage says it. Above all, keep fervent in love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 
This passage appears to emphasize the covering of multitude of sins as an expression of love for one another. Now, I want to read a quote from you from MacArthur in um, his book on forgiveness. And I'm not usually, I don't usually read quotes, and I'm not, I, I don't normally do this, but he says it better than I can, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> All right? And I'm just going to read it to you. Y'all hang in there, listen closely. When I read a quote, that means you're going to really have to pay attention. Okay? Because I'm not going to be as expressive, and I'm not going to have my hands waving. I'm just going to be reading. So you need to listen really closely. All right, here we go. He states, quote, It's obvious from Scripture that sometimes forgiveness must be conditional. For example, in certain cases, the offender is to be confronted and ultimately even excommunicated from the church if he or she refuses to repent. And he quotes Luke 17 and Matthew 18. But, he says, does every offense call for confrontation? possibly leading to formal church discipline. Is there no place for simply granting unilateral forgiveness for petty offenses? He asks. Is there no time when the offended party should simply overlook a transgression, choosing to suffer wrong and forgive without being asked or formally confronting the offender? Is there time? Obviously, these questions have important practical ramifications, he says. If you had a friend who scrupulously, that was really good, tried to confront you every time you committed petty offenses, wouldn't the friendship grow tedious pretty quickly? I want you to think about it for a second, folks. If a marriage partner saw it as their solemn duty to confront each other for every offense... Wouldn't such a mindset make the marriage relationship practically impossible to endure? It is a mistake to assume that verses Luke in Luke 17 and Matthew 18 are absolute prescriptions for every kind of transgression. If he keeps on going, y'all hang in there. You're getting the gist, right? You're getting it. Everybody getting it? Okay. If we were obligated to confront one another for every paltry misdeed, we would be doing little else. Indeed, Scripture gives us another principle for dealing with the vast majority of petty infractions. Overlook the offense. Forgive unilaterally, unconditionally. Grant pardon freely and unceremoniously. Love demands this. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 10, 12. He who covers a transgression seeks love. Proverbs 17, 9. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, but bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 to 7. MacArthur con continues. J. Adams recognizes that Christians, the Christian's duty to overlook petty offenses, citing some of the same text. But, Adams writes, it's not forgiveness. Having defined forgiveness as a two-way transgression, J. Adams has no room in his system for a unilateral or unconditional forgiveness. So he draws a distinction between forgiveness and overlooking another transgression. 
If true, that would mean all petty offenses would we choose to overlook are not really to be regarded as forgiveness. But the Bible itself makes no distinction. Covering another's transgression is the very essence of forgiveness. Speaking of God's forgiveness, Psalm 32.1, equates the concept of forgiveness with covering sin. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and the covering of sin. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's associated, covering with forgiveness. So he concludes, so when 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins, it's describing forgiveness. Furthermore, Scripture also teaches forgiveness can be unilateral in Mark eleven twenty five. So let's look at this verse. There we go. Y'all can turn your Bible, you can look up there. Either way, turn your Bible, it's the safest way, then you'll know where it is. Luke, Mark eleven twenty five. Ready? Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you of your transgressions. Obviously here, in this passage, I'm no longer quoting MacArthur, I'm going on my own here. Obviously, in this passage, Jesus gives no opportunity for confrontation while standing there praying, right? If so, he'd have to say what? Stop! Stop! Go talk to him! Reconcile forgiveness, and then come back. If you have something against him, you've got to let it go. That's what he says. So how in the world do we know when we should confront and when we shouldn't? How do we know? That's a great question, isn't it? Well, this is when I say go back to Chris Braun's book because it's got some pretty good thoughts. I think both guys, by the way, are very good. Read both books. You reconcile it. Work it out in your heart. Find out what the Bible says because that's what's important, right? Chris Braun's book, Unpacking Forgiveness, he gives some some questions to ask to help us to know whether we should confront somebody. You need to know whether you should confront somebody, right? Here we go. Again, I want to give the warning. There are cases where believers should let love cover a multitude of sins, and I think this is what he's talking about here. These are the times that we need to let love cover. Let's look at Chris's questions that he gives. These are the questions you should ask before you go confront, okay? Boy, I know, we're off Luke 17, but there's a reason, because ultimately people will take these verses and go to the nth degree, and you've got to make sure you understand, okay? Why Luke 17? Why confront? That's important. Let's look. Have I examined myself yet? You need to write these down. They're in the notes. If you didn't get the notes, we only had 30 notes, so you need to write these down. These are important. When should I confront my spouse? Ready? When should I confront my brother or sister in the Lord? First question you should ask, have I examined myself yet? In other words, am I really before the Lord? Have I looked at my own heart? Is this about me or is it about them? Second, 
How sure am I that I'm right? <laughs> Chris says, quote, In those cases where right and wrong are not clear, it's usually best to what? Drop it. If you're not positive, this is a biblical mandate, and they are in outright rebellion to God, drop it. Do you understand? Third, how important is this? He says, and I love this quote, if you always think you are right, you have a pride problem. <laughs> Similarly, if you think that everything is important, you have a sensitivity problem. We all know someone who thinks every offense is a big deal. We each need to evaluate ourselves and see if we are too sensitive. Boy, that's a great quote. That nails it. <laughs> Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen? How important is this? Fourth, does the person show a pattern of this kind of behavior? <laughs> Again, is this a one-time event, offense, sin, or is this a pattern? And again, I agree with Chris most of the way, but when he says basically this is an offense, and he, he, he kind of leaps around it and says this isn't really a sin, but it's still a sin. If somebody does an offense, and it's a sin, and it's one time, and it's not a pattern, it's still a sin. So he's saying, in effect, if it's not a pattern, then you don't confront and I agree with him, but again, I just think this is semantics a little bit. We're arguing about semantics. If you're ready to forgive, you're there. Sin is sin. Listen, sin is sin. And if we let sin go, I think that's forgiveness. And if I get irritated one time because someone does not live up to my expectations, then it's still sin, right? Let me give you an example. If one of you says... Mike, I want you to do a counseling session with me, and you show up, and, and we have an appointment at 4 o'clock, and you show up at 4.30, not 4.05 or 4.02, but 4.30, and I've been sitting there, and inside I'm like, man, I could be at home with my wife, oh man, I could be spending time with her, and this is 30 minutes, what's going on? And I get irritated, and somebody else is in the room with me, and I... Man, I wish this person would just get here quick. And I show a little bit of irritation there. Question. Should you confront me with that? Well, yeah, I guess you could. My irritation. It, it was sin, wasn't it? But it's not necessarily a pattern. Do you understand? If I'm constantly, every time somebody's like, what are you doing? You're late again. 4.05. Now, what are you doing? That's, that's different. Do you understand? I think there is let, letting love cover a multitude of sins. You need to realize this with your, with your people. Fifth, what do wise people counsel you to do or me to do? In other words, you should ask this question. And, and it should you you and by the way, let, let me just put one little preface on this little point. You go and say, such and such said this to me. What should I do about that? Oh, don't do that. Because what you just did is you gossiped about that person. 
You just ran them down. You need to be careful. Because your heart might have been not been right when you came to me and talked to me. You're like, man, I got hurt. They need such and such. And what you should do is this. Use it generically. Let me give you a circumstance. And make sure you don't give so many details that everybody, in the, everybody that's hearing it knows who that person is. Do it in private. Get counsel. But when you get that counsel, if the counsel of the person says, hey, you need to just let that go, then what should you do? Let that go. Let love cover a multitude. And six, and finally, what else is going on in the other person's world? Chris Braun states this, Certainly there should be times when we choose to let love cover a matter because of the circumstances surrounding the offense. He suggests the other person being under some pressure. Again, being under pressure can be a cause of sin. But sin is sin. And sometimes we need to let it go. Okay, folks, are you getting this? And there is definitely a time for letting love cover a multitude of sins. So to summarize, there are times to confront and there are times to let it go. The main point is do, listen closely, is this. You ready? Do what is best for the other person and God's glory. Do what is best for the other person and God's glory. If you are thinking about the other person, not yourself, then you are probably ready. <laughs> and maybe it's a good thing. But if you are all about yourself and why you got hurt, you're not ready. And there's a problem. Being ready to forgive is where we need to be. You know, I really believe that this is what Peter thought. This is what the disciples thought. They get to this passage and they're going, wait a second, forgive? Ready to forgive all the time? They weren't thinking, confront? Okay, I can do that. They weren't thinking that. They were thinking, got to be ready to forgive. Got to be ready to let things go. Got to have a heart that puts others above themselves. That's what they were thinking when they heard him say this. So back to our passage in Luke 17. Look what they say. Look what they say. You see it. The apostles get it. They go, wait, now what you're saying in effect, they must know this in their mind. They're going, wait, you're saying, let things go? Be ready to forgive? And by the way, just one more little note. I saw this just the other day, and none of the commentaries mentioned it. It doesn't say anything in verse 4 about going and confronting. It appears, it could be that they just come back and say, I repent. You didn't even go and confront them again. They just come back and say, oh, I repent again. I did it again. I repent again. You've got to be ready to forgive. That is the main point. Look what the apostles say in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now we're skipping all this. Increase our faith. They get it, folks. Why? Why increase our faith? Because it takes a lot of faith to let things go when people hurt you. It takes a lot of trust in God to let things go when you are hurt. 
Would, how many of you would agree with that? When you are hurt, is it just, oh, this is natural, no problem. Got it. You just whack me. Oh, no problem. I'll let that go. It hurt, but that's okay. I'm going to let that go. I want to have a good relationship with you. Think about this. Somebody hurt you? Don't you just want to go hug them? Don't you? You go, oh, yes, come here. I love you. <laughs> Nobody does that. That's impossible, isn't it? Is that impossible? Somebody hurts you? Is it impossible? It goes against our human nature, doesn't it? Somebody hurts you? How about this? By the way, most of the time this is talking about believers. Luke 17 and 8, Matthew 18. I don't. It, it's talking about that. What about the world? How are you ready to forgive the world because they ain't repenting? No, they ain't repenting. <laughs> they treat you bad. Don't return revile for revile. Be ready. Be ready. The world ain't going to like you. They're going to treat you bad. So what do you do? You do this. I love you. Come here. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm like the apostles. I'm with them. Increase my faith. I need to know you better and trust you more, and then I will do it. Then I will do it. The more I know you, God, and the more I trust you, God, forgiving is nothing. Then it becomes easy. Interesting, huh? The more you understand how much he's forgiven you, the more you know how much he loves you, the more you understand how big God is. You trust him, your faith increase, increases, and you respond in obedience to his commands. That's what he's getting at in this passage. Notice what Jesus says to him. Notice what he says to the apostles. He says, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost comical. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What? <laughs> okay, now the word of faith movement at this point steps up and says, Man, see, you just need to have more faith. You call on God and you can get healed. That is not what the verse is talking about. Context, context, context. The greatest of these is context. Truth. Listen to me closely. Here's what he's saying you need faith to do. Forgive. And not be a stumbling block. That's the context. That's impossible faith. That's some, I need some mega faith to be able to do that. When somebody treats me bad, i got to be ready to forgive. And so what does he do? He gives an impossible circumstance to illustrate what God will do through your faith. That faith will have supernatural effects, powerful effects. What are the effects? Well, you can actually take a mulberry tree, uproot it, and put it into the ocean. Is that what he's... He's using that just as an illustration it's an illustration. He's not saying literally, okay, everybody, I want you to pray for this flower to get thrown in the ocean. It's 
Nobody's saying. That's not the point. The point is, is that if you have faith, genuine faith, it can do supernatural things. It will produce in you supernatural fruit. What is that supernatural fruit? Forgiving people over and over and over and over and over again. And not being a stumbling block to people. You know the coolest thing is, I pray before I came up here, Lord, please help me not to be a stumbling block. I want to teach this truth. Lord, help me. I know you're true. So what am I doing? I'm basically saying, God, you've got to do it. And I believe he can protect us as we humbly seek him. And he will work these supernatural things. He can use this sinner up here to tell you what the Bible says. Unbelievable. It's unreal. And he can use this sinner up here to forgive people even when they hurt me over and over and over again. How about you? Do you need your faith increased? The good news is, is that if you have just a little bit of faith, you can do it. Just a little bit of faith. A little bit of an understanding of God, and you're going to be able to do it. You're going to be able to do supernatural things. What is this? Over and over we're seeing in Luke, constantly, over and over. What are we seeing? High view of God, low view of man. <laughs> High view of God, dependence of man. What are we? We are the people that walk around going, I need you, God. <laughs> and you are sufficient. That's what we are. We have a church full of people that are needy, dependent people on God. That's what we are. And I'm okay with that. How about you? The world tells us the opposite, right? I was watching poor Usain Bolt last night. I felt sorry for him. I really did. I, I pray for the man. I'm the fastest man that's ever run. You know, I'm a legend. I feel really bad for him. I pray, I really do. I pray that he comes to understand what dependence is. Who should be praised when Usain Bolt runs that fast? God. God. Nobody goes around going, You are amazing, God! Wow, you made this guy run fast. You did it! Way to go! He says, no, I'm a legend. No. No. By the way, that is actually looked at and praised. That's praised. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not about what we do. It is about what God does. We are unworthy slaves. That's what we are. And that's his next point. That's his next point. Look at it. Totally dependent. And he says this, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending the sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat, and afterwards you may eat or, and drink. He does not, verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? 
So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Ladies and gentlemen, that verse, these verses right here, I, I am almost positive have never been preached in a seeker-sensitive church ever. I am absolutely positive they have not been preached. Matter of fact, most people in their, their right mind would avoid this like the plague. Nobody's going to preach this passage. First of all, it deals with the whole issue of slavery. Oh my, let's don't do that. Look at this. We see here Jesus says, in effect, know your place. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Know your place. This may be hard to hear for some of us, most of us, including myself. Jesus basically says to his disciples, realize you are slaves of God, and obedience should just be the obvious responsibility for all of us, no matter what. Obedience is who you are. You're a slave. Just do what you're supposed to do. Wow. Jesus gives the, a setting and then three questions to direct us to think properly. And all three of the first three questions for us in our culture are shocking. They're shocking for us. But for those that were listening to it, it wasn't shocking at all. It made perfect sense. For those people that were dealing with this, they would have looked at those questions and gone, oh yeah, sure, I know the answer. He gave three questions. And they know the answer is no problem. But for us, that Jesus is even asking the question makes us go what? Stop! Don't even ask that. There must be something wrong with this. Throw this verse out of the Bible. You can't have these. First of all, look what it says. Which of you? Who's he talking to? The disciples and, and specifically the apostles because the apostles said increase our faith. The apostles! Which of you apostles, disciples, having a slave plowing or tending a sheep? Whoa, what's assumed there? The apostles or disciples could have slaves. Right? We'll say to him, when he is coming in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. Now, you know what they're going to say to that question? None of us would say that to our slaves. That's an assumed answer. None of us would say that. He doesn't give the answer. He assumes the answer. He says nobody would tell our slave, hey, come in, sit down and eat. Now, at this point... I don't know about you, but I'm reading this the other night going, oh, I don't like this. How am I going to be able to preach this? I think we have to remember a couple of contextual patterns. First of all, slavery was not based on color of skin. It was often related to economic status. In other words, somebody would sell themselves into slavery in order to get out of debt. I'm in trouble, so I need to be a slave so I could pay for my bills. And that is the context. But, but let's be honest here for a second. Even there, isn't there a little bit of attention for us? 
I mean, let me ask you a question. Isn't it kind of sold even in our society that the, the, the poor deserve better? The poor should have better? Isn't that what our society says? Now, I know what I'm talking about now is going to shock some people. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is it all comes down to one main thing. Listen to me closely. It has one main thing in view. We have a high view of humanity and a real low view of God. We think humanity deserves better no matter where they are. But we don't. I think Jesus is getting this point that you need to be a total, dependent, needy, humble slave of me. And if you're there, you will obey me because it's what you do. Know who I am, know who you are, and you will do what you're supposed to do. But if you don't know who he is and who you are, you're not going to do what he wants you to do. So the assumed answer in the first question is what? Who will say to his slave when he has come in from the field, come in immediately and sit down and eat? The assumed answer is no one would say that to his slave. Why? Because a slave is a slave and the owner is the owner. That's the way it is. There are roles. Now at this point in the passage, probably everybody's being rubbed a little bit. But folks, the reason we struggle is because we think of ourselves as higher than we are. Now, caution. Again, it's not about race here. It's not about that. Nobody in this room is better than anybody else in this room. Nobody. Nobody. We are all human, wicked sinners. And apart from God's grace, we deserve hell forever. Okay, that's a proper view of everybody in the room. Do you understand? not about that. It's not about color. The master's point is very simple. Know your place. Know who you are. Second question. Look what he says. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink and after you may eat and drink. This is what the owner said. Yes, that's what they would say. That's the obvious answer. Yes. Owners said to slaves when they came in, listen, put the right clothes on, feed me. <laughs> I know that sounds harsh, but it's the truth. You work for me, so I'm the owner. Feed me. I know this is impossible to hear. But it's what he says. That's the assumed answer. And the proof behind the assumed answer is the last phrase. The last phrase is when it's applied to the disciples. We'll get it in a second. Folks, by the way, just a side note here. Can you imagine if you saw yourself as the unworthy slave deserving nothing? If you thought yourself that way, thought to yourself, had that view of yourself, how hard would it be to forgive people? It would be very easy. Very easy. 
See, if you don't think you're all that, then when somebody treats you bad, you say, well, I'm getting what I deserve anyway. I don't deserve better. I'm nothing. Now, that's a wild thought. That's just a, a side note, but think about that for a second. You understand? Man, I know I am treading on some hard stuff right now, but this is what the passage this is what you're talking about. Why does the feminist movement have so much problem with the women submitting to their husbands? The reason why they have a problem with it is because they think the woman should be at least equal or greater than the man. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. I want to lay it out there for you. Boy, this, if this doesn't clear out the congregation, nothing will. <laughs> I told you, nobody, no seeker-sensitive pastor ever in the planet would preach this passage. Never. I'm trying to rush through it. Notice? <laughs> Third. <laughs> Third question. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he commanded him to do. Wow! Now it's just that's even further. It's almost what? The assumed answer is what? Of course he doesn't thank the slave. What? What? No way. Is this what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, of course you don't thank your slave for doing what they're supposed to do. It's obvious. Okay, does that make everybody in the room a little uncomfortable? Uh, only, only if you think you deserve a thank you. Which means you have a high view of yourself and a high view of God. <laughs> wow! How many of you have ever gotten offended because somebody didn't say thank you for what they did? How many times last week? <laughs> Wait. Wait. It's because we think too highly of ourselves. Way too high of ourselves. This is life-changing thinking right here. I'm telling you, if we think like this, forgiving is automatic. Avoiding causing other people to stumble is automatic. You know why? Think about this for a second. Even the stumbling thing. You're going to do everything you can to die to yourself knowing that you're nothing. God's everything. And you don't want to cause them to not enjoy God. I don't care. It doesn't. You do anything to me. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Because I want to show forgiveness and show love and not say that I deserve better. Because if I ever do that, then they're going to get a wrong view of who's king. Do you get this? 
This is so very important. If you say, I deserve better, then you say, King Jesus is not enough. Think about this for a second. If you're elevating yourself as deserving something, in effect, you're saying, I'm worthy. And therefore, you minimize God. But if everything's about getting you out of the way, I'm the unworthy slave, I'll do whatever he says, then he gets all the praise and all the exaltation. All of it. Everything. It's not about Mike ever. So look what he says in verse 10. It's, it's almost, it's almost uh, shocking because the first three questions, they would have been right in there. They would have been, yeah, us masters talking to our slaves, gotcha, yeah, me, them, me, them, me, them. No, you, down here. That's what he did. He just, me, them, me, them. No, you hear. So, you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, because after all, I'm king, you're not. Say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Man, isn't he a master? He is awesome. It says even in the logic of asking the questions, he gets them to a degree to step up and think, yep, they'll do what I say. Yep, they'll do what I say. Of course they'll do what I say because I'm the master. I'm the owner. And he says, no, you're not the owner. You're the slave. You're the slave. By the way, I want to just take this and just turn it all the way around on you. If we get verse 10, we will never treat a slave bad. Ever. Matter of fact, we will serve our slaves. We'll wash their feet. If you get verse 10, you will put others above yourself. It doesn't matter who they are or what role. Do you hear that, husbands? Do you hear that, husbands? But my wife's supposed to submit to me. Oh, men. You have missed the point. See, if you understand Christ as your king, you will be the greatest repenter and servant in the house. Now we're starting to really mess things up. Now you're stepping on toes, Mike. Stop. See, I can be the repenter. But when my wife tells me to wash the dishes, that's a whole nother issue. Ask me for some help. Y'all get it? Do we have a high view of ourselves? 
absolutely. We need to repent. We need to understand that when he commands us to do something like forgive, be ready to forgive, don't be a stumbling block, we say, yes, sir, of course I should. I'm just an unworthy slave. Does this mean that God does not love us? No, this means He is a master that is very loving and kind. See, He's a master beyond all masters. He's a king above all kings. You know why He's a king above all kings? Because our king said, my slaves can't save themselves. So I will step down off my throne, come to earth, live a perfect life, and die in their place for them. I have a king I want to follow because he loves me and died for me. And it is not it is not a burden. It's a privilege because he loved me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. We are unworthy slaves. And we want to obey you, God. We love because you first loved us. We want to obey. We want to be ready to forgive. We want to never be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. We want to die to self. We want to serve you. Increase our faith. Help us to know you more and to know who we are. Oh God, please make us followers, obedient slaves. We pray this in Jesus' name.